Hello, and welcome to Exploring Axon, a podcast where we discuss Axon Framework, Axon Server, and their ecosystem. I am your host and a software developer at Axonic, Sarah Tori. I spent some time with my colleague Bert Laverman talking to him about how to set up Axon Server. But we also discussed in lots of details about architectural concepts such as domain-driven design, microservices, CQRS, and more. This talk was divided into two sessions. I hope you enjoy it, and let's have a listen. I want to go back a little bit and talk about domain-driven language and how you uh, became familiar with it and why do you think it was a useful tool to use? Obviously, at that time, you knew about uh, microservices and CQRS. And so I, I'm assuming, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but domain-driven design, I'm assuming, came after these two. Yeah, I think about the same time. I, I had a, an, actually, he was not working for the same company. He was an external uh, consultant. But he talked to me about domain-driven design, and he sent me towards uh, the book uh, written uh, about uh, domain-driven design. So I think that is the first time that I looked into that. And it made a connection because it's a known problem that uh, if you start developing an application, you tend to put in a lot of ideas from different domains, different business domains in there. And especially if it's a larger company, then the, the department that pays for the application determines the right. domain. I mean, there is, for example, to take something which should relate to any any person working in IT. Take, for example, the application you use to register your hours. Now, about 90% of the applications made to register your hours were not paid for by the department that owns, so to speak, all those consultants. They are made by the obvious user of that information, which is finance, who wants to know, okay, which customer can I send a bill for the hours that you worked on? However, if you make an application and let finance dictate how that application should be built, you get an application where um, every consultant is saying, I mean, why do I have to choose all kind of finance-related specific details before I can finally enter the number of hours? I mean, it's like I need to be a bookkeeper before I'm able to write my own hours. Exactly. And that is something that domain-driven design is a lot about. If you have a domain, if you're writing an application for a specific domain, then you have to find a common language that all the users in that domain are using. Otherwise, you're just going to confuse the hell out of everybody. Right. So... Um... In your experience, when um, designing a system or an application, what are the main things that you look into in terms of thinking about that business problem you're trying to solve in terms of domain-driven design? Well, I think one of the first things that you have to look at is how big is my problem, actually? What am I trying to solve? And something that we have done a lot in the past and that we maybe should be more careful about is upfront deciding how much of the world do we want to solve. Because especially in the, in the 90s and, say, the zeros, we tended to have the feeling that we should make big standards. For example, say, if you work for the local government, 
then uh, you're not just making a few applications that need to connect to each other and you need to, for example, query the registry about information of the people living in that city. No, you want to make a standard communicating that kind of information that everybody in the country can use. So what happens then is that you generally either create a, a standard and say, this is the standard and we should use it for everything, but it has never been designed to be such an open or at least such a far-reaching standard, which is, uh, of course, terrible for everybody then forced to use it because they're saying, hey, I cannot do what I want with it. Or you get a project that takes years and years and years yeah. because everything grinds to a halt because right. everything that you start to standardize, you start to think, okay, but I also need to take care of, and I also need, oh, damn it, we forgot yeah. this. And, <laughs> it's literally and, like going down the rabbit hole, like something new opens up and then you have to figure that one out. <laughs> yes. And you do so, end up at the end with this big ball of mud. Yes. The, the big scary thing of microservices architecture is that at a certain moment, you simply acknowledge that I'm just making this little teeny bit of software here right so who cares i mean and if you do it really well and if you're if you have a team that is really productive and and is capable in uh, its building of software and also um, automating the builds and automating the testing then it might be that it's a piece of software that has been written within one month so who cares that it is using non-standard technology or using non-standard designs? Because at most, it will cost you a month to replace. Sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that is a very scary thing for a lot of people. I can imagine. But I think another one of the good things that we don't highlight as much, at least in my experience, is the fact that when you're splitting things up, when you're designing the system, and you're basically assigning different teams to different parts of this application. You can actually choose, in some ways, different languages even that are used in the same mm -hmm. system. So you're not uh, limiting yourself in, oh, we're just going to write this application in Java and Java alone, and we're not going to touch Kotlin, for instance. It gives you a lot more freedom. It gives you a lot of opportunities to experiment and figure things out as you go. And as you mentioned, the parts of the system that you're working on are small enough. And if designed well, with a lot of uh, thought behind it, it can actually make it a lot more enjoyable, I think, to work in a team or in a company, because you are giving certain amount of freedom to your developers and to your architects to be able to design this in a way that actually works for different teams. And then, of course, we... Mm -hmm. When we talk about domain-driven design, and one of the things that I always appreciate when when I first looked at Eric Evans's book and then moving forward and reading some other articles by Martin Fowler and others, is that a common language, common play, playground, basically, in a way that you use this ubiquitous language to be able to communicate with the other teams. And one of the things that 
Uh, a lot of times I think we forget, not only in terms of software development and system designs and things like that, but it, just generally in companies, is that we don't necessarily speak the same language. And we've had mm -hmm. this conversation, you know, we joke about it. Sometimes we say, oh, us as the the technical quote unquote side of the company, the developers, we don't quite understand the language of, for instance, the sales team or the marketing team or things like that. And vice versa, we, we start talking about all these different uh, processing languages and different, you know, server and databases and da, 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 da. And in two seconds, they're lost. So when mm -hmm. designing these systems and how creating a common language that everybody can benefit from, I think is one of the really wonderful things that is worth highlighting and is worth uh, thinking about. But I think at the same time, that can be a little bit complicated too. So in your experience as, as an architect, where do you put those boundaries? Where do you make it so that it doesn't become overly complex and overly just, you know, beyond control of anybody when you have just too many people bringing in their opinions in, into the table, basically. And where do you say, okay, this is where we're going to stop. I think this is enough information to start designing a system or application. I think what can help you focus is to use something called an agile design or an agile development methodology. And it's problem it is that as soon as you tack the word methodology to it, I mean, it's, it kind of evokes the feeling of certifications and trainings and managers. And I think Uncle Bob, he's called, who did some very good presentations about this. He actually started to do a presentation called Agile is Dead, Long Live Agile. Yes, it's, an, it's a, in one of the go-to Amsterdam YouTube collections that you can still find. It's a very, uh, very interesting thing. But the problem is there that true agility doesn't have to do with the methodology. But the methodology can help you to structure the way you work. And what you need to do is say, okay, I know this is a huge program or a huge problem that I'm trying to solve but I need to cut it up into smaller bits. And if you can drive yourself to say, okay, let's just try and see if we can do something that we can finish in two or four weeks and that actually runs and does something, then you have a force there that is telling you not to be too big because you cannot afford to say, I'm going to solve the world anymore because you cannot solve the world in right, four right. weeks. <laughs> you need a lot longer. So it means you have to focus and say, okay, so what is my problem here? And then you have something else, which is called lean software development, which says that you have to fix your biggest problem first. Say that you have this new product and you want to launch it. So... What do you need to do? What is your biggest problem? Well, telling my customers I have this product. So you can just make the front end, <coughs> sorry, and make sure that the customer knows about it and do the rest by hand. So then you have something that you can do within those two to four weeks. And then your next step is, okay, this is painful. <laughs> I mean, I have told the customers, but they started ordering it. And then I have to do... But I don't have anything so to take the orders. Your biggest, yeah. 
take your biggest pain first and that is the way that you can force yourself to take small steps and is it sort of like using bounded context in a way as well so you're putting things in different chunks or does that come a little bit later in the process no the bounded context essentially is the way you start yeah. because you're put your context around the product but there is something related to the problem that you mentioned. Something that happens a lot, especially in larger companies, is that you have an IT department and a business department. And you're saying, oh, I have this team and the people know a lot about the software development, but they don't know really what those sales guys think. So what you have to have is one team that is product oriented. And the one thing that you have to be careful for is that the product is not the application because no customer is going to see that as a product. They don't want to buy your application. They want to buy the product that is offered using that application. So you get a team which has both IT people and business people in the same team, which means they are focused on the product and their language becomes that product. And that is how you set your bounded context, because you're all looking at the same thing. And then at a certain moment, you're going to say, okay, that's nice. We've got a product Well, we started building the application for it. We started delivering things to the customer, but we also need to deliver things towards finance, for example. And then you're going to say, you're not going to say, okay, that's part of our bounded context. No, that's something else. Those guys are different. What do they want? So you get a boundary there. And that is your other bounded context. And that's the way you can structure it and keep it, keep some sense in there. And of course, your team, your your team will tend to standardize on a few tools because you only have a limited number of people. You cannot have one part in Python yeah. and the next <laughs> part in Java. You have freedom, but don't abuse it. <laughs> it's just... I mean, it's, you make it difficult for yeah. yourself, but there is something else which has to do with that pick the biggest pain <laughs> first. If you want to innovate and change, then you have to recognize that, yes, I can do it in what I'm comfortable with and have always been using, but hey, there's this language called Go. And they're saying that it's perfect to solve this problem that we see down the road. So let's do an experiment. And don't be afraid to use it. Then see that it is integrated into your domain. And then you can decide, okay, this makes me understand this new problem. And you can decide whether or not you want to go that way. And you can also decide whether or not you want to continue with the new technology. You can say, well, I understand it so well now that actually I can solve it with my current tool set. Or you can say, yeah, I agree. Go is definitely the way to go. Yeah, forward. yeah. I think it's it's a delicate balance between wanting to use various technologies and tools and Mm -hmm. having the that notion of yes this is available to me but do i want to complicate things for myself down the road so it is that yeah. i think that also is part of the when talking to team members and trying to solve this business problem um, ultimately basically is what we're trying to do and then setting those limits and boundaries i think that's important and i also what you uh mentioned just a minute ago about the uh, different parts of the company, a business, 
the common language, the commonality that we talked about a while ago, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're coming up with an entirely new language that the entire company has to understand every word of it. But you're basically picking a few words in a way that is understandable within different team members of this uh, different departments, basically, mm-hmm. of the business. So that it's very easy to communicate the needs of those departments. But at the same time, then you have your own language within the development team or um, the operations team or you know the marketing sales side of things. So it doesn't have to exactly be you're using the same exact language for everybody. You're just choosing certain phrases, certain words that uh, make it much easier for different departments, basically, to communicate. So, yeah. and the same holds the same holds for the technology right, that you're right. using. And uh, that is actually what software architecture is mm-hmm. all about. I was hoping you talk about uh, that. I think there was one. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> there was. There was a presentation a number of years ago from somebody from Port Authority Authority in, I think for it was for the Port Authority of Rotterdam, but it could have been Amsterdam, I'm sorry, one of the two anyway. And he said that they viewed it as, as follows, the team was just developers. And when they were doing Agile, the company simply fired all the enterprise oh. architects. So they had no architects anymore. Oh my God. But yeah, I mean... Of course, it it can can clean up, but yeah. the problem is that at a certain moment, somebody is starting to get this doubt: Are we doing the right thing? Are we not making it too difficult for right. ourselves? Are we not creating problems, roadblocks for the future? And then he said, "What we eventually did was simply kind of throw the dice and pick someone within the team, and it would be his responsibility to worry about the future." <laughs> No pressure whatsoever on that one person. <laughs> and yes, well, the thing was, of course, um, you don't want to force somebody to do that for the rest of his life because you're forcing him out of right. the company if it's if if he doesn't like it. Yeah. So what they did was actually make it a rotating mm, job. Okay. And that worked quite well. He said, I mean, you cannot forget architecture. You have to have somebody who's looking at how does everything relate to everything around it. How are we ensuring that we still can go into Mm -hmm. the future cleanly? Somebody has to pick up that button. And and if you don't have someone who feels comfortable with doing that all the time, then make a rotating job. Uh, Yeah, that's a smart decision because it uh, makes you aware of the system as a whole so you you have to really think about it as in terms of okay what's happening right now but also what's happening what's going to happen in the future which i think is something that's really important and sometimes we forget thinking about because we're always focusing on the now and uh, what we want to accomplish in the application like oh i want to have this feature and that feature next week but we don't think about it in terms of okay long term year from now, two years from now, how, mm-hmm. how do I want this application to move forward? So that's that's a really, I think, smart move. So mm-hmm. this is a really, really interesting topic, and I can talk to you about it for hours. But I do have another topic that I really uh, would love to, to mm-hmm. discuss with you, which is going back to Axon Server. And talking mm-hmm. about, so we, we did discuss before about Axon Server and its functionality and some of its specifics. But can we 
discuss a little bit about how to set up Axon Server in your environment, or maybe mm-hmm. in you know Docker or something like that. And what are your recommendations? And mm-hmm. be as detailed as you like. You've, you've, <laughs> you've given me the golden opportunity for the favorite answer that any consultant can give. All right, so tell me all about so, this. What it is? What is it that it's depending on? Yes. Well, I think the major influence, of course, has to do with your company. Maybe your company is saying, we have to do everything in the public cloud. So then that is going to restrict your choices already. But it might also be if you're a large company and you have some very strict old style IT departments that say, thou shalt not create virtual machines. <laughs> right. That some smart developer says, okay, just give me a Kubernetes. <laughs> okay, that is, and then, they, the, the IT department says, oh, yeah, that's that's this newfangled thing that everybody's using. Okay, you can get right. one. But don't, don't bother me with anything inside it. You can do that mm-hmm. yourself. And if you want something around it, yeah. come back. And then they say, <laughs> yay, now we can deploy Axel Server inside right. Kubernetes. I mean, it's, it's probably not entirely fair, but some teams might end up in that kind of situation. Yes. Yeah. If you don't mind, can we go back a little bit and maybe tackle this one at a time? So for instance, let's say Mm -hmm. somebody just wants to play around with Axon Server. So we have the standard edition. It's open source. It's free of cost, you can you can play around with it. No. What do you recommend this individual to, how, how did they set it up on their local environment? Yeah, well, I say, I think, uh, say 10 years ago, we would say just download it and run it locally. And you just have a, a command window open somewhere, type Java space minus jar, and then the name of the jar file, and you're good to go. Nowadays, practically, any developer has a Docker desktop installed on his laptop. And then you can just download the Docker image. We have a, a publicly available image. It's with the obvious name, axonic slash axon server. And of course, the tag is latest because then you get the latest version of axon server and it just runs. Okay then it's still isolated because it's nowadays with security, you want to isolate things, but you want to communicate with it. So you have to add a few options in there and then you can talk to the standard ports, the uh, HTTP port and the gRPC port. But if you do that, then you have a running Axon server. It's locally, as long as it's up and running, it will have an event store and it will allow you to have multiple applications to connect to it. And you can do uh, all your experimenting and developing with it. And if you stop it and restart it, it'll get a fresh event store. It'll be clean again. And uh, that is very easy also for things like testing. So you mentioned gRPC. Do they need to do something specific to set anything up specifically? Or is it all done through Google? The gRPC port, well, the only thing you need to do is just make that port open so you can talk to it. And then the gRPC libraries that are included when you write an application with the Axon framework, they will ensure that uh, you make a connection to that port. Easy enough. So you don't need to do anything yeah, special for very it. Good. It's uh, all automatic. Nice, nice. Yeah. Very good. Now, if you want to use Axon Server, I'm assuming that you wouldn't want to use the standard edition 
in a company setting in production? Maybe you do. Are, are there? Mm-hmm. I, I know there are <laughs> benefits to using the the enterprise edition, but let's say you want to use standard edition. Is this a? Is there a different setup? Can you still work with Docker and use it in production? Anything changes? Well, yes, you can use uh, standard edition for it, but something you have to definitely look at is the event store. Because by default, the event store is there inside your container or it's announced as a volume, so it will be in a separate directory. But anyway, that directory is cleaned. When you stop it, you get a fresh one. That's not what you want. So you need to look at volumes and mount a volume at a location that is not cleaned and that you can make backups of. And then it's then you are already pretty far on the road to using uh, Axon Server in production. But then I would suggest that you, at the very least, also look at things like access control and uh, using TLS, because that is how we nowadays want to run our software, secure and right. safe. Absolutely. Um, one other thing, if you could highlight, is Axon Server Standard Edition versus the Enterprise Edition. How many nodes do you have and what are the real benefits that you may want to use Enterprise Edition in production? Well, Axon Server Standard Edition doesn't do clustering. So you have a single node and that is all you have. So there's no backup, there is no... Nothing. No. Yeah, okay. And if you deploy it into Kubernetes, and for example, Kubernetes says, hey, there's this new version uh, 1.19.5 or maybe uh, 1.20, then it needs to vacate a node, uh, as uh, they call it, which means that they just move all the workloads to a new location, to a new uh, node. And that means that suddenly Axon Server is down And after some time, it will be available again. But during that time, your your applications will no longer be able to run because they cannot connect to Axon Server. And that's not something you want. If you have a cluster with multiple nodes, then as long as a majority of those nodes are still up and running, all your applications applications are happy and can work. Exactly. Yeah. And in Enterprise Edition, we have either three nodes cluster or five, correct? No, actually, there is no set amount of okay. nodes. You can make uh, clusters of, of course, there is a, a license to be paid for the number of maximum number of nodes, but you could make a 10-node cluster. The only thing is what you can do with Enterprise Edition is have multiple contexts. And that is kind of uh, compared to your, to your domain from DDD. But generally, what you use it for is to ensure that you have a separate event store and all the commands, events, and queries are within that context. So applications in a different context are not bothered by anything that is going on in the other context. If you put that in a cluster, of course, the data is all replicated across all nodes in the cluster. But that is not always something you want. For example, you might want to have a cluster in the US and you want, might want to have a cluster in the EU. And then you want the data in the EU to stay in the EU and the data in the US to stay in the US. So what you do is you define a replication group and you assign nodes to that replication group. 
And then the replication is done only within that replication group. Okay. And then within each replication group, then based on however many nodes that you choose for that cluster, then you have a certain number of backups, correct? Uh, you can. You can define the role that a node has within that replication group. There is a role called backup. There are two types of backups, actually, active and passive backups. And you can have uh, the standard, uh, which is a primary node. But we also have multi-tiered storage where you can use secondary nodes, which is very useful if you have a clear usage of events, of recent events in your application, then it can be very useful to have the primary nodes that only have the events of the last year, for example, and give that a very fast disk. So they become very high performance. And in the few moments when you do want to access older events, it will go to a secondary node because that has everything. Nice. And those you can give cheaper but larger disks. Right, right. That's that's really amazing. The more I learn about Axon Server, the more it's like my mind goes, <laughs> it's really cool. So just to uh, wrap that up, in terms of setting up Axon Server, anything else you'd like to add? Because I know we talked mostly about uh, setting it up in Docker. Mm -hmm. Other ways that you recommend? Uh, well, of course, bare Docker is mostly used in the development scenario. Mm -hmm. the, so Kubernetes and virtual machines Sorry. is what is used most. And the virtual machines give you the most flexibility, but generally take the most work to prepare. Kubernetes is very good in the automation of deployment, and the limitations of Kubernetes deployments, I think, are what at a certain moment will push you towards a VM installation. It's, uh, there are a lot of customers who use Kubernetes and are very happy with it, but for example, there is no cloud provider at the moment that is able to give you a Kubernetes cluster, which is multi-region. So all your nodes will end up in the same region. And if you want to have better availability, you have to distribute it. Now, you can do that with a Kubernetes cluster in region one and other Kubernetes cluster in region two. But then the stuff starts to get complicated because then you have to get, dive into the details of how do I define network connections between different clusters in such a way that it works and works well, which is very dependent on your provider and Amazon and Google and Microsoft all have their different ways of doing this. So most of the time actually gives you the best options, but it's not for, for a lot of people, it's not an option. And they like the flexibility of the automated sure, deployments sure. that right. you can have with Kubernetes. Yeah, which makes sense. Fantastic. Anything else you'd like to add, Bert? I know we talked about a lot of things, <laughs> but... Anything that I missed or forgot to highlight? Well, I, yeah, I mean, just like the generic advice is uh, take a look at our site, the yeah. documentation, the blogs. We've got a lot of nice blog articles about different subjects. Yeah. I also wrote a few articles about running Oxon Server. Yes, which I will include. options there. Yeah, and I will yeah. include that in the notes for the podcast. That way everybody can take yeah. a look at them. So you have... I'm, I uh, actually, yeah. 
I'm actually doing a revisit of the Kubernetes mm -hmm. installment at this moment. Nice. Okay. It's not finished yet, but I'm working. It's coming it. out soon. Okay. So I mm -hmm. think you have a, a series of blogs about setting up Axon server. If I'm not mistaken, there are three mm -hmm. of them on our uh, site at axonic.io. And you also have another blog on InfoQ about running Axon mm -hmm. server. And that one, I think if I remember correctly, that one is mostly centered around Docker, correct? No, actually, it has the same three installments, but it's a, it's a rework, a rephrasement, sometimes offering more information uh, on certain topics. Okay, so, so um, I'll be sure to include that as well in the notes. That way yeah. we have all of that information mm -hmm. also. Fantastic. Yeah, this was such a great talk and I learned so much in this time that we, we chatted. So I really, really appreciate your time, Bert. Yeah, no problem. And we haven't even talked about the other go that's interesting. <laughs> we will come back to it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have we'll have another episode and we'll we'll discuss that for sure. Mm -hmm. Anything else you'd like to add in the topics that we discussed today, Bert? No, I think I mean just give me five minutes and I'll make it. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> imagine, yeah, there's there's a lot that I, I have also a lot of questions that in regards to other things that I'd like to discuss with you. So for sure, I'll come back and we'll have another session and talk about it. I really appreciate mm -hmm. the amount of knowledge and experience you have. So I'm always ready and hungry for more to, to receive. So that's really nice. Thank you so much for your time, okay. Bert. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Bert. Please join me next time as I talk about event storming. Until then, have a great time and happy coding.